0: Show of hands, how many of you were raised in homes where there was the view that politics and religion don't mix? Anybody? Don't be shy. You can raise your hand. Like, I I was definitely raised in that. Okay. Man, a lot of you weren't. I would have liked to have been around your dinner table because uh, it was uh, exciting. exciting. Yeah, I bet it was exciting. All right. Well, then buckle up. You'll enjoy this. But um, here's the thing. Jesus talks about a lot of taboo things. And some of those things are things that for that culture was really taboo. But we look at it and we say, oh, no, that was wonderful. Like, for example, when Jesus um, reaches out and and heals the leper or the way that he treats women and and includes women and and gives them an identity that they didn't have uh, in that culture. When we see things like that, we say, go, Jesus, that's awesome. But we forget and we miss out sometimes on how shocking it was and how Jesus demonstrates over and over again that he is not afraid of anything. And why would he be? I mean, everything was created through him and for him. So why, why in the world would he be concerned uh, about approaching topics? But sometimes when we look at scripture, we can, we can look at that and think, oh man, if I was there in Jesus' time, I would be on board with everything. And if Jesus came here in the flesh today, if he returned today and started teaching to our culture, I know I would be on board because I, I, I'm, I'm on board with Jesus and I'm on board with everything he talks about. But I've said many times over the years that if Jesus returned today and, and walked around and, and taught the way that he did back in the first century, and if, if we all followed him around for 24 hours... I guarantee you that every single one of us in that 24 hours would be uncomfortable and would be offended. It's just the nature of who God is when he confronts us as sinful, broken human beings. And so Jesus has another situation here where what we're going to see is the string of challenges against the authority of Jesus. Now, last week, we talked about how uh, they questioned where Jesus got this authority from. And so we saw how Jesus handled that and put them back in the corner and, and saying that, that all things come from God and, and that he has authority over all things. And so we, we really we, we dug into that. And, and then what we see here are that the Pharisees, that, that those who opposed Jesus, they're not going to give up so easily. And what we have is a string here that we'll cover over the next three weeks of seeing um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, each bringing a challenge to Jesus, each trying to paint Jesus into a corner so that they could get rid of him. And so the first, the first challenge here is going to be from the Pharisees. And they're going to go right to the heart of politics and political authority. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Heavenly Father, help us to marvel at your word. Help us to be in awe of who you are and what you have done and what that means for us. That means for who we are and how we are to live. God, protect us. Protect us from a hardness of heart. Protect us from believing that that we have learned all we can learn from you. God, I pray you would take us deeper into our relationship with you this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we have this situation where the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, which we'll get to why that's interesting here in a a little bit, but they come together to ask Jesus this question, but the question is is overtly to to trap him. So they're not, again, they're not asking a question because they want to know the answer, that because they're wrestling with this issue of should we support the Roman government in this way or should we, should we support God, you know, should we give our money to the temple or should we give it to, to Caesar? They're not, they're not asking any of that. They're asking that to trap him. They're putting Jesus in yet a, another either-or situation. They, and they set it up um, with kind of false flattery. And what's interesting about this false flattery is they actually unwittingly say something very true about Jesus. So they're kind of buttering Jesus up, and we're like, "Hey, look, Jesus. We know you're not concerned about, you're not worried about offending anybody. You're not worried about um, what what popular opinion polls are. And so because of that, we can trust you to answer this question directly. Do you see what they're doing to him?" They're trying to get him. They're trying to butter him up and flatter him to push him into making a really hard stand about something. And so they say, look, we really admire this about you. We really admire that you're not concerned. You just speak truth. But ironically, it's because of the truth of their statement that he won't be trapped. Because he's not swayed by man. He's not swayed by even the Pharisees. Jesus is very clear that he answers to God, that he is not swayed by man's opinion. He is rock steady, never changing, because he is perfectly focused on glorifying the Father, that he and the Father are one. And that same confidence, and that's really important for us at the outset of this, because that same confidence that Jesus has in the face of the Pharisees is the same confidence we can have standing on his word. It's the same confidence. Jesus is confident because he and the Father are one. And because of Jesus, we are joined to the Father. We have God's word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit in us testifies to its truth. And so we have confidence in that. The word is not intimidated by the culture We never have to fear that God's word is is out of date or will become obsolete or that we need to somehow shift it because otherwise we're going to lose people from the church. Like we don't have to do that. We can look at Jesus as he demonstrates that the word of God become flesh. We can see the confidence that he stands before accusations and before these challenges and we can see how he handles them and we can take heart and confidence in God's word as well. And so when we do that, we need to make sure that we trust God's word completely and not just in the areas where it agrees with what makes sense to us or what we're feeling in the moment. One of the ways that we have to do that is we have to make sure, again, that we let the Bible define its terms. And we don't bring our own views of what that looks like. And so we've talked about before how we equate joy with euphoria or temporary happiness, but the Bible has a different definition of joy. Or we, as people, equate love with acceptance, but the Bible has a different definition of love. We equate kindness with giving someone whatever they want often, but the Bible has a different definition of kindness. We equate freedom with me being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. But the Bible has a very different definition of freedom. And so Jesus, being confident in who he is and his identity in the Father and being the word become flesh, he sees through the trap. He knows their hypocrisy And he answers their question in a profound way. So he has them bring a denarius to him. It's interesting just to note that Jesus didn't have one on him. Like I find that kind of just fascinating. Of like he had to have someone else bring it. Like we've talked before about how Jesus was poor. And this is just one of those examples. Like he didn't even have a denarius on him. And so he asked them to, to bring it to him. And he says the famous line. He asks, who, whose inscription is this? Whose picture, whose image is on this coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And so he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. And it says they marveled at what he said. Why? I mean, at first blush, this idea of saying, well, give to Caesar that which is Caesar and give to God's that God that which is God's. First blush seems kind of like compartmentalization, just classic compartmentalization. Like Jesus is saying, hey, you know, there are things that belong to Caesar, like this coin, and then there are things that belong to God, like, you know, religious stuff. And, and we often look at that, and, and people will even use something like this to, to say, well, that's why you should keep your faith and keep you know, your, your religion stuff out of the rest of you know, how you view politics or how you view, view money or anything like that. Like Keep those things separated. And we kind of buy into that because we live that way a lot. We're, our hearts are prone to compartmentalizing our faith. We like to see lives as our, our lives as a bunch of separate blocks that don't necessarily relate to one another. Like, I think this way about business because this is smart business. But, I, but you know, when I'm in church, I think this way about God and about spiritual things. Now, look, there's a, there's a good way to compartmentalize, right? I mean, there's, some of it is good. It is, it is good for a police officer or a doctor to compartmentalize some of what they see and do at work from their home life. And so that, that's a constant battle for people who are in um, jobs where they are constantly seeing tragic things and horrible things, that they have to learn how to kind of separate that um, from home a little bit. I mean, certainly a, a military drill sergeant who barks orders all day would be, would be wise to change his tone and kind of compartmentalize that a little bit. You see that a lot if you're a, a fan of football. Like a lot of times they'll talk about some guy where they'll say, man, he is just insane on the, on the field. Like he just, he, he's, he, you know, he is aggressive and, and violent and all this. And then, but off the field, he's a big teddy bear. So we see some of this compartmentalization going on. But the problem is when we put God in one of those compartments, foolishly thinking that he then is separated from everything else. The reality is he, can, he created all of those compartments. He is Lord over all of them. And when we don't understand that, we become hypocrites. We become the churchgoer who deals unfairly with people at work because, well, that's business, that's my work life. Or the guy who is completely different on Saturday night with his buddies than he is on Sunday morning with the church family because, well, that's my time. I do what I want on my time, but here, you know, I devote this time to God. But the reality is God is God over all things. So Jesus is not setting up compartmentalization here. He's not setting up territories. He's not saying, hey, look, there are things that Caesar's in charge of, and then there are things that God is in charge of. And so let's just keep those things separate, What he's doing is answering the question in a deeper way than what they intended. Because understand here that the trap that they're setting for him is Jesus is, is, should have been kind of in a pickle here. He should have, if he, if he answers, they know we've got him. If he answers, yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar then there would be people who are saying, oh, you're supporting the Roman government, and so you're against us. And and so he would lose all the followers who saw him as their deliverer from from the oppression of the Roman government. They would see him as kind of a syncretist, that that he's just meshing um, their faith in with the Roman government. So if he says, yes, let's pay taxes, then he's supporting the Roman government. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, your money and everything else belongs to God, then he'll be seen as a rebel. And the Roman government, though very lenient and very accepting of religious diversity, drew a very hard line against political diversity. And so immediately, like they would kind of let the Jews have their faith and let them argue over those things. and like, that's fine, as long as you don't challenge Caesar. And so they think they've got him. And so Jesus answers it by saying, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar. And then he continues and says, and give to God that which is God's. This is why this is so amazing. He's looking at the coin, says, his picture is on it, so pay it. Great, definitely pay that. But he continues, give to God what is God's. And with this answer, Jesus does a couple of things that everybody in that crowd would have understood. That yes, I understand from us, it, it, we're, we're not sure quite why that's so amazing, but everybody there would have understood a couple things. Number one, on that coin was the claim that Caesar was God. So by saying, give to Caesar that which is Caesar, but give to God that which is God's, he's saying Caesar is not God. He is drawing a hard line that Caesar saw himself as divine, but Jesus is saying there is one God and it isn't Caesar. That's a big deal. He's drawing a hard line between that and saying, This government, Caesar, is not divine. And the second thing that he's doing with that is, in this type of argument, he puts God second, which makes him superior. So we get, you know, we flip that around in our Western culture. We often think, like, first things first, but not in this culture. In this culture, the argument would have been going usually from least to greatest. And so he's saying, Caesar, give to Caesar that which is Caesar and God that which is gods. So he's saying not only is Caesar not god, but he's saying God is superior to to what Caesar has. He's superior to Caesar. He's saying yes, Caesar has authority, but there is a greater authority. So they thought they were putting Jesus in this either or situation, but Jesus again answers truthfully and in a deeper way than they expected. He's telling them, yes, you should obey the authorities that have been placed over you. Pay these taxes to Caesar. But the reason you obey that is because those authorities were placed there by God who rules over all. Where do we get this idea? I mean, Jesus clearly lays this out. That God rules over all things including the governments of the world. Paul will expand on this in Romans 13. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Piece of scripture about how we are to respond to governments. And I think it's really important for us to consider that in this culture, in our day and age, it is, it has been so over said that it be, has become trite, that we are a divided nation. And I don't know if that's all, I feel like that's always been the case. Like people have always been politically divided. And the reason why we weren't allowed to talk about politics in my extended family is because we had so many different views and it just turned into arguments. And so I think like, you know, this has always been the way that it is. What concerns me is how divided we become in the church over it. And so I think we need to remember, as Christians, we need to say, okay, what does the Bible say about how I should think about politics, how I should think about government, how should I approach these things? I mean, we, you could argue that 2016 was, was the most challenging and difficult election that any of us have ever experienced. And my guess is that 2020 won't be any smoother And so if not, if that's the case, then how do we think about this? What do we do with the government? How do we think about politics? Because unless I'm going to say, you know what, my politics are my politics and my faith are my faith, then we have to submit ourselves. We have to look at scripture. And so that's really my hope today. My hope is um, that we can give some framework, some biblical framework to how do we think about politics? How do we think about government and I do want to do a disclaimer here which is I have a very special skill set when it comes to this thing to this kind of topic and that is I offend everybody equally (laughs) I mean I have I I can tell you lots of examples where I have offended a room full of Republicans I have offended a room full of Democrats I have even offended libertarians which is awfully hard to do (laughs) Because they just say, just leave me alone. You, do it. you be as crazy as I want to. I'll just let me do my thing. And I've even gotten them riled up. So I'm good at this, okay? And it's equal opportunity. So what I care about is that we as Christians would think about these things biblically. That we would trust God above all things. Amen. That's my desire. So if you'll trust me, let's look at this. What do we know from Romans 13 and from what Jesus says to them? God is over it all. God appoints governments. God appoints them. He is sovereign. This is a crucial piece that we need to make sure that we understand that God is the one who created them, designed them, and appoints them. And so we do not need to worry that we need to take back the government for Christ There's kind of this fear sometimes of like, we need to take back our Washington, D.C., or we need to take back our local county seat or whatever. We need to take it back for Christ. Let me tell you something. He never relinquished it. God has never given it up. He will never give up control, his sovereign leadership over our world. Even if the leaders aren't Christian. Because some people think we, we, need to, we need to retake these things, but he never gave it up, he never lost it, and that should give us great confidence to work and serve wherever he places us. So many of the struggles that we face in this world, we face because of this misunderstanding, that we, we, need to see, that we see as step one getting control of these positions of power, and then we can enact godly laws. But that's not the case. Because God has never relinquished control. He has appointed the government for our good. And it's important to note, this is a really important note here to to make right here, that when Paul is speaking about the Roman government here, it's not exactly a Christ-like regime. Okay? They, They would be known for persecuting Christians, either feeding them to wild animals or burning them at the stake. Okay? So, Paul is not making the argument, like, we can't look at this and be like, oh, well, you know, but that government was probably pretty godly. No. In that culture, there was not only persecution of Christians, there was slavery, there was female infanticide, there was corruption, there were all of the worst kinds of things. Paul's point isn't that the government is good, just like Jesus' point isn't that taxes are fair in and of themselves, His point is simply that God is over these authorities and they will be held accountable by God. So one key thing that we have to have as a foundation is that submission to a government is is about trusting God. It is not about the worthiness of those who rule. So there's, I'm trying to break this down to some really practical things. This is kind of going to be a little different of a message because I'm trying to just be really, practical and straightforward just to give us some help of how to think through these things and so I think I, I feel pretty confidently because of that because God appoints it here are, are three things that we definitely should do when it comes to government one is we respect the office even non-Christians or people you don't respect individually when, when they ask Jesus if they should pay taxes Jesus doesn't ask well what is the tax money going to Or what's his platform? What is Caesar's platform? What's he been running on? How has he treated you? What does he think about this kingdom message I'm bringing? He just asks, whose picture is on it? Who's been given authority over it? The bottom line is that God created government to serve and protect the people, according to Romans 13. Now, does it always do that? No, of course not. And we do speak out when things happen, and we we should, in submission to the law's work, to ensure that our government is fulfilling these roles. But part of being a Christian in any given government is saying, I respect that office. And so whoever wins an election, especially like when you think about a presidential election, it always breaks my heart when people say, well, they're not my president. According to Scripture, they are because God placed them there, not because of their worthiness, but because he's God. And our submission to that and our respect of that comes from God, not from that person's worthiness. See, I'm off to a strong start. I'm already upsetting people. Second thing is participate in the process. It means vote. Participate. Listen, you can believe, like we can disagree on all kinds of things. You can believe in the two-party system and just choose a candidate that you think has the best chance to win and has the best platform, and so you vote that way. Or you can believe that in voting for a third-party candidate, you can kind of break up some of this block here, and and, and that's going in a good direction. But what you can't make an argument for from Romans 13 or from Mark 12 or from any of the other places in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and all the other places where God talks about government is that we can just check out. We don't have that option. We don't have to be informed on every single thing. We don't need to obsess over it, but we can't check out. Our neighbors need us to participate. Our neighbors need us to love them and serve them well by being a voice in this. There's all this talk, now this is out of my notes and I may get into trouble here, but there's all this talk about what honors or dishonors the sacrifices that have been made for this country and what it means to live in this country. And i got to be honest with you, the thing to me that honors it the most, those sacrifices, is when we participate. Most of the world doesn't get to do that. We have, God has placed us in whatever reason, he's placed us under a government that allows us to participate, allows us to speak our mind, allows us to run for office, allows us to get in there and do something like we can do that. And that honors the sacrifices that have been made. And the, the third thing that is very clear that we need to be doing is praying for those who serve. 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, whatever we do, because we trust God, because we believe that God is over all of it and he appoints all of it, we respect the governments that God has placed, we participate in them and we pray for those who serve. So, then the question that is coming up more and more and is probably going to come up more and more in our country is well, do we ever break from that? Do we ever disobey? And this comes back to render to God what is God. It's like we belong to God. And so, yes, our obedience is first and foremost to Christ. And so we obey the governments because we are obeying Christ, but if there comes a point where the government asks us to do something that would be disobeying Christ, that's when we disobey. We don't disobey when something makes us uncomfortable. We don't disobey when something just doesn't make sense to us or we feel that infringes on our rights. We disobey when the government says, you are not allowed to obey God. There's so many examples of this. Daniel refusing to pray to the king in Daniel 6 and being thrown into the lions. In Acts, we see that um, Peter and John are brought twice before the council to, and, and charged not to obey uh, or not to, to preach the gospel. And they say, hey, we're going to let you go, but what we charge you with is don't, don't speak or teach in his name. And I love how they respond because at first they try to be a little more subtle about it. They first say in Acts 4... Um, they, they charge him not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they respond, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the first thing is, you know, we'll let you guys judge if we should obey you or obey God. And then one chapter later, they get arrested again. They get brought in front of them again. And again, they say, stop teaching in this name. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This time, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Like, let me just fill in the blanks for you here. And that's what he's saying. Like the first time he's like, you know what? You decide, do you think we should obey God or you? And then they come back with us. Okay. I'm sorry. I was unclear. We're supposed to obey God. Let's make that really clear. And this is going to become more of a thing. I do believe that. It is possible that the gospel may become hate speech. You can be sure that I will still preach it. You can be sure that the leadership in this church will continue to proclaim the gospel regardless of what the government says or regardless of the cost. So We don't obey the government because it is worthy. We obey out of submission to Christ, our greater authority. All right. So, if that's the case, if we believe that, how do we participate in this? How do we think about these things? How do we live out being submitted fully to Christ? Well, the same thing that we talked about last week applies here, which is when Jesus says, render to God that which is God's. He's saying, everything belongs to God, including you. So we belong to God. Now, this is why this was so amazing. Okay, so he takes the coin, the image on the coin. He says, whose image is this? They say, Caesar's. Okay, so then this belongs to Caesar. Whose image do you bear? God's. So you belong to God. That would not have been lost on the people there. God, God's image is on you. So you belong to him. God wants your heart, what you value, what you desire, what you work for. It should all be from a heart that is transformed by Jesus. So it's not just picking a party that shares the most values or comes to the conclusions that you come to. It's about letting the gospel transform how we view everything because we belong to Christ. Therefore, our allegiance is not to a political party. It is to Jesus and everything. And this matters because if you follow Jesus, you will be out of step with every political platform that is out there. I promise so remember I said that we were going to mention why the Herodians were an interesting crew to get thrown into here? Okay, so the Pharisees were essentially um, the conservatives of the day. They were kind of the right-wingers. They believed that um, they, they, were, they, were kind of, they wanted minimal involvement from Rome. They wanted Rome to to stay away and keep out of their religious affairs, and so there was a lot of just kind of this view of like, okay, you take care of some of these things. We like that you protect us as a people. We like that you do roads and that kind of stuff, but otherwise, stay away from us. The Herodians were on the opposite end of the spectrum. They were Jews. They were considered the liberals, the left-wing people. They were, they were syncretists. They were saying, no, nah, we need to work. The government needs to be involved in everything. And, and they were considered by a lot of the Jewish people as sellouts. And so they were very pro a lot of Roman involvement in, in all of the things. And then whenever the Roman government would say, you know, we want to help you in this, but you need to compromise some of these things. They would say, okay, yeah, no problem. We'll, we'll compromise that. Not a big deal. So... How do you think the Pharisees and the Herodians felt about each other? Not great, okay? They hated each other. They were completely opposed to each other. And here they were coming to confront Jesus together. Because nothing unites people quite like a common enemy. They had a common enemy in Jesus. And so that united them. And I believe the same thing happens today because if there's one thing that the political left and the political right agree on, it's that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a nuisance, that it's foolishness. The gospel of Jesus Christ confronts all parties and all political platforms, and if you're going to truly follow Jesus, you will fall out of line with your political party at times, and you must Anyone who tells you that it's simple, that if you, will, if you just love Jesus, then you'll vote this way, doesn't really understand the gospel. It's not simple. It's quite complex. And it was in the days of Jesus, too, which is why his answer was so brilliant. And so, yes, we, we serve and we participate and we think, but we do so in a way that demonstrates that we are owned by Christ, that we are consumed by Christ. Christ. So if you believe that government is appointed by God and that he is sovereign over all things and that our allegiance is to Christ, then what does it look like to obey him even in the area of politics? Well, that part is pretty simple. It's just the great commandment. We'll see this in a couple of weeks. Jesus will answer when they say, what is the greatest law? And he will say, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So if we are going to be Christians in this political system then we need to love the Lord with all of our hearts. That means that we worship God and not a political party or a leader, which means we put our hope in God, that we understand that the government is not our Savior, that Jesus is. And so we don't put our hope in the government doling out justice or making things right or fixing sin. All forms of government have sin in them because they have people in them. It's our depravity. It's our sinful hearts that pervert all of these things. There is no pure political philosophy that keeps us from sinning. Jesus is our savior, not a government. It means that we need to submit to his word more than a political platform. There are a lot of people out there, both in in politics and in churches, who will use scriptures for their own personal and political agenda. It has happened all throughout history. But we need to be people who stand on God's word and submit to that first and foremost. And so we need to spend more time with him in his word than we spend on the 24-hour news cycle or on Facebook. We need to to be so focused on scripture that it fuels everything that we think about anything else. I'm sometimes discouraged in in conversations that I've had across the country and different environments when it seems that people hold their political ideas with far more conviction than they hold biblical truths. It's easier to sway somebody off of a biblical truth than it is off of their political view. I think we would all say that's a problem. I think the third way we love God in this is that we guard ourselves from the evil one. Understand that the enemy loves political division. It's his favorite. I think propaganda and propaganda just feeds on our fears and our insecurities and our pride. And so we buy into those things. Like I know I'm gonna date myself and sound old. I knew that as soon as I started saying like, well, there used to be a day that I was in trouble. So here it goes. I'm just over forty. I'm forty years old. And and I'm saying it. I remember a day when journalists reported, but now they persuade. And we, as Christians, need to be sober-minded, clear-thinking, and calm. Propaganda uses all of Satan's favorite tools of fears and insecurities and prides, whispering, is God really in control? Don't you think he could use some help here? So we humble ourselves? So we love God. We are devoted to him. And then we love others. We realize that it's not about me. Paul says in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we are, when we think about politics and policies and local and national and all that, we should count others as more significant than ourselves. Christians should never be speaking of politics looking to protect my own rights first. Whenever we start talking about my rights or what I deserve, then we are very much outside of biblical authority at that point. We are not serving the king who did not count equality as something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his his life as a ransom for many. That's who we serve. That's who our allegiance is to. And so that's how we should function. And that testifies to the world when we are concerned with others rather than ourselves. If we're going to love others well in this, then we need to have grace with one another. Like I said, politics are complex, and people are not going to reach the same conclusion as you. But if you both belong to Christ, you should have similar motivations and hearts of how you got there. I also think about loving others by listening humbly and being willing to learn because we know our political climate right now is full of people who are 100% sure that they are right and that anybody who disagrees with them are morons. I think that that's probably, like if you surveyed most of America, that would be their political platform. Everybody else is a moron. And I get it. I feel that way sometimes. I read things in the news and I'm like, oh my goodness, how do we think that? Like, how is that even possible? And I get frustrated and I get worked up and I go into Robbie's office and I be, can you believe this? And Robbie just says, yeah. Like we're just broken, right? Like we're just, we're with this depravity. Like it's sin on display all the time. The fact that I can't believe it's happening just shows my own depravity. So I need to listen humbly to people. I need to be willing to to consider what people are saying. Jesus always took time and he listened. I'm amazed at how often he lets the Pharisees actually get their questions out. Like at what point do you think Jesus would be like the Pharisee comes up to him and says, teacher, we know that. Okay, let me just stop you right there. All right. Like I'm just not hearing this anymore. I'm not going to listen to your conversation or listen to your question. No, he doesn't do that. He asked. He let them ask just would love for us to have grace with one another and be humble with one another. Listen to others that don't agree with us. Listen to people outside of the faith. Listen without fear. And Finally, the last thing in all of this is to go back to the original purpose of government that God lays out, which is to serve and protect the least of these. So if my allegiance is to Christ, then I value what he values, which is the widow, the orphan, the least of these. I don't judge their situation or think that I'm above it. I care for people. I love my neighbor the way that Jesus has loved me. I love my enemy the way Jesus has loved me. We can argue and disagree, and we will, about how we accomplish those things. Even if we fully devoted ourselves to saying, you know what? Okay, I'm going to put through this filter. When I think about politics and I'm going to think about how how am I supposed to handle taxes and how am I supposed to handle voting and how am I supposed to handle serving in the government or how am I supposed to think about all these things, I'm going to run it through this filter and say, I want to love God. I want to demonstrate that God is my God, that no government is my God, that no political party is my God, that they are not going to save me, but God is my God. And I'm going to be fully devoted to him and to his word, even if it makes me look crazy to somebody else, even if people, other people disagree with me. And then, out of that flow, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, even if it's hard, even if I'm not exactly sure why they think the way they think. I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to serve them. And even if all of us did that in here, we would still disagree on conclusions. And that's okay. It's even good. I debated of whether to give really practical examples of what I mean by this. I tested out on my wife a couple of them this morning and her facial expression told me I should probably skip it. (laughs) But I don't want this to just walk away being like, "Eh, okay. So I'm just going to give you two quick examples. And I'll do super easy ones. Like immigration. That's easy, right? Come on! <laughs> Even if you're sitting there thinking, isn't it time to be done? Now you've got to be thinking, no, I want to hear what's next. Like, let's hear this. Listen, you can disagree on how to handle it. You can, you can say, you know what? I think we should just be open. I think we should just let anybody come in because we're a country of immigrants. Or you can say, you know what? I think the, best, thing, the way, best way to love our neighbor is to have a process and to have it be really controlled and regulated. And so we need to be careful. like We need to close down parts of our border. like You can reach all of those conclusions, but we can't argue that we're not to love our neighbor. We can't argue that, that people outside of the United States don't matter to God and shouldn't matter to us. It needs to be motivated by love of our neighbor. And then when you're sitting with someone who disagrees with the conclusion, but you both say, okay, I want to love immigrants and refugees well. We start there and we have that conversation. Now we go into different conclusions or whatever, but we have this route together. Like, okay, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. So let's love our neighbor. I think this is the best way to love our neighbor. I feel that way about so many things. i trying to pick a gun control, right? That's an easy one. I mean, listen, I moved from Denver, Colorado to Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Do you think there's a different view on gun control in those two? Like, I'm not even going to ask how many of you are carrying right now. I don't want to know. Okay. And I had to get used to all that. But here's the thing. Christians, we should be the first ones to be praying for victims of tragedies. We should be the first ones calling out to God for mercy, not defending our rights. We also should not be thinking that the government can come up with some kind of law that's going to protect us from sin. But we should love people and we should definitely from a biblical point say you know what it's not about my rights the gospel is about laying down our rights we die to ourselves and so whatever that looks like if we start from there and say i want to love my neighbor well and i'm willing to give up my rights whatever that looks like to love my neighbor well now we can have a conversation it goes on with so many different things you can believe in climate change or not Just don't hold to some position because the political platform tells you this is the way that it is. Regardless of where you stand on that, we can't argue that we're stewards of God's creation and that God is sovereign over his creation. Frankly, I don't know if climate change is real or not. If it is, I'm pretty sure that God is doing it. But that may be in response to our sin and not stewarding it well. I don't know. But those are the conversations that we need to be willing to have in that. And there's so many others. I actually went to a website and said, what are the most hot-button political issues? And that's where I got my list. I was like, all right. <laughs> I mean, so there's other ones on here. I have like health care reform. I've got, you know, abortion. I got whatever you want. I got it on here. But here's the thing. Why is this important? Simply this. Politics have a unique opportunity for us as Christians to display the glory of Christ. And we display it by saying we treasure Jesus above all else, so we're not afraid. We love other people in a way. Remember, early Church of Acts, that was the biggest marker of who they were. They loved people that they weren't supposed to love. They put others before themselves, and the world looked at it and said, what is wrong with you? Why are you selling all of your stuff to take care of this single mom? And they say, because the gospel. Let us do that. And I would love it if we have Christians who are blood bought, devoted to Jesus, that are active in the Republican Party, and that are active in the Democratic Party, and they're active even in the libertarians, that are just saying for the gospel. That's why I'm motivated to be here because of the gospel. And that then they see the unity of the body of Christ. That we are united around Christ, not around a political platform. And that's why we have communion. That's why we take communion when we're together. This is what buys our unity, this is what buys our allegiance. It is the blood of Jesus Christ from the cross. This is why we take it together, because by taking it together, by crowding around a table, even though I know that it is awkward for, for many, I get it, but that's why we do it, because it is a symbol of us coming together around one table and saying, we have one Savior. We are, our allegiance is to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the same Jesus who saved you saved me and made us brothers and sisters. And so we crowd awkwardly around a table and we take the, bro- the bread that symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ that was broken and we dip it into what symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's by that price that we were bought. And we do this together in remembrance of him. So I'm gonna pray and then I'm going to ask that we come forward in, in doing that. I would encourage you to sit at your seat for a moment maybe gather yourself. And if you need to pray for, if you need to repent of your compartmentalization, maybe this morning you're, you've been confronted with some things and I just want you to know, like, that's good. Don't be afraid of that. God loves you and he is shaping you and he is forming you. And so maybe you need to, maybe you need to repent of where you've kind of picked a, a camp or a party over Jesus. And then you need to be united and see yourself as this is your family. And come forward and take the elements together as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you. I thank you, God, that we can be a family that talks about anything. I thank you, God, that you've placed us in a a time in in history where we are able to speak about these things, where we're able to stand for you, where we're able to, uh, where we can be a beacon. But God, we know that in order to be a beacon of light, we have to stand apart, that our unity has to be in this body, in this family. That our allegiance is to you, our King. God, help us to be consumed by you, consumed by thinking about who you are and what you have done and what that means for how I should consider things and how I should serve and how I should live. God, prepare us. Prepare us to proclaim the gospel in all circumstances. To love people even when it's costly. To count others as more significant than ourselves. To submit to the authorities above us, but all under our submission and our obedience to you. The God who loved us and gave himself up for us.